0: Welcome to Staff Unplugged. This is season two. In this season, I've decided to focus on incredible women. You'll listen to entrepreneurs, business and corporate executives, journalists, authors, all human beings that are having an incredible impact and do so on a day to day basis. You'll hear me asking them some of those layman questions relative to their particular domain and their expertise. And just listen in on their incredible answers. Such a privilege, such an honor to bring you these individuals, these incredible women. Enjoy. Okay, it's my pleasure to have Rachel Chikwamba on the podcast. I must be honest, it's been... What is it? I think this is the third or fourth attempt for me trying to get you on the podcast. And I've I really, I've been, I've been excited to interview you in this capacity. We sit on the board of the CSIR together, so we'll steer away from too much of the business angle with that institution. But I've been really excited. I mean, I've been, I, I remember getting you to speak at a Google event. I connected you with the Google folks. And I always thought if I ever started a podcast and if I ever did something like this, that you'd be one of the first people that I interview. And season two is all about incredible, remarkable women. And you were definitely in my top three. I just want you to know that.
1: Oh my goodness. I bet that is what you say to all the people you in interview. It's an absolute pleasure having the chance to have a conversation stuff. And indeed, let take a while. We've tried to make this happen, but finally here we are.
0: Okay, fantastic. And look, Rachel, you sit on the board of the CSR with me, but if someone had to just Google your name, I mean, I, what comes up is quite profound. You know, you're like a geneticist, but it's I think it's more a flora-based geneticist. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to tell you what I do. First of all, you're from Zimbabwe originally, correct?
1: Yes, so I'm Zimbabwean, that's now permanently resident in South Africa, and the love of my art And the ability to continue doing what I do technically is what has gotten me to settle in South Africa. Obviously, South Africa has been an amazing home for me and for many other Zimbabweans and Africans. But given the circumstances, I'm a scientist at heart who loves to do applied science. And if I couldn't do it effectively, then I think that as a human being, I would feel curtailed and not empowered or enabled so i found the best environment to practice my art on the african continent i've been overseas as you know for my studies but i wanted to do it on the continent and i wanted to do it effectively and south africa has been the home that i've been able to do it effectively from
0: yeah, I mean, the conversations we've had i think on the board when you and i sit together on the board when you are in those board sessions it's usually the time when you speak, I must be honest, that I go, this is why I'm here.
1: Oh, my goodness. We have to correct something, sir. I'm the <laughs> yeah. executive of the CSIR. You right. are the member. So, we'll be accounting to yourselves.
0: Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. Yeah. Again, that's the scientific preciseness of you, just making sure that the record states are correctly. Absolutely. But I love it when you start speaking. Because you are the person in that institution that oversees all of that technological advancement. And the insight that you have across all the projects and their, their roles and their implications is quite profound. But before we get into that too deeply, what made you get into what you've gotten into? I mean, what, what spurred it on in Zimbabwe? Because if I take a look at your age and my age, I think you still from the breadbasket Zimbabwe, the times in Zimbabwe were still incredible. Yes,
1: absolutely. Yeah. So, so let me explain that history because it's a very fascinating history. So I went to high school at a Catholic boarding school school called Nagel House, very nice. Very strict discipline but certainly very nice. And then I went to the University of Zimbabwe. And this was about my first year was 87, so I'm quite old. But that was the then very profound, very strong university on the continent. I think it continues to be one of the very good schools on the continent actually. So I went there and I studied a degree in plant science, in agriculture, actually.
0: Wait, wait, before you jump too far, what spurred you on to study that particular discipline specifically? What was it in school that gave you that? And the reason I'm asking is there's a lot of girls out there that are not in the sciences, that are not in the STEMs. And kind of how did you branch into that? Because it's a very masculine industry.
1: That's very true, now that you say. But I've always been fascinated with science. Ever since I remember asking my teachers, Why are plants green? Why are the clouds, why do they take on the color that they take on at different times of the day? And so those are some of the things that have fascinated me. So science has always fascinated me. And originally, I had wanted to be a medical doctor. The way it worked in my country at the time was that you would do your advanced level, which was British-based system A-levels, and then you will get assigned a degree according to the points that you got. And I just missed my points for the medical degree. And then I was assigned to agriculture. And I thought, what on earth is this? But plants fascinated me. So I thought, oh, well, never mind. And I suppose at that time, I didn't take anything too seriously. You know, when you're young, everything can go. I'm still in the sciences. And so I started plant science, found it absolutely fascinating. And what happened was I come from a smallholder background. And there's so many challenges of production and productivity. And so for me, as I got more senior, I started to find a cause in a degree that I got into by chance. I don't know if you understand what I mean. Because then I realized there were so many solutions that could come out of science to tackle the challenges of the small farmers. As it so happened, that was the dawn of the real breakthroughs in plant biotechnology. This is when I think they were beginning to discover that you can create herbicide-resistant crops to facilitate commercial farming. You can create, using genetic engineering, pest-resistant crops to really amplify the yields and to also protect grains and storage and so on. And so that is a subject that was just emerging, totally interesting, breakthrough-type work And I was doing my honours degree then. So I learned to tissue culture for my honours project. And I did really, really well. And then from then on, I got a scholarship to pursue the same subject at the University of Queensland in Australia. So I spent some time on the, um, they call it the Gold Coast in Brisbane, in Australia. So that was a lot of fun. And so I continued to study. And it had to do with the power that we have to manipulate genetics. So my original work was about improving the performance of plants. As I got more and more interested, it was about we can engineer living systems like plants to do anything. And then I got fascinated with health and health-related molecules. So if you then look at what I do, you did say you come from a floral background, but you work in health. Absolutely. By the time I did my PhD, it wasn't a PhD in plant science. It was a PhD in genetics. I had done immunology and biochemistry and microbiology and all the other things that I needed to give myself a set of skills that would have allowed me to um, participate in saying, "If what is the problem? The problem is availability of the blockbuster medicines that come from biotech. How can they be made cheaply? That was another imaging platform, the plant platform. So we have made amazing products. So it's interesting. Most of the time when you come to the CSIR and we have conversations, we're talking about things that have got to do with the corporate side of the CSIR. But I'm actually a scientist. I actually still have research grants. I actually still work with people in the lab. We work on broadly neutralizing antibodies. It's a class of um, protein-type, biotech-type drugs that are used to combat infectious and chronic disease.
0: Love it. I want to ask you a question that I I ask every single one of the female uh, folks that I interview right now, especially in this season. As a woman, what have been your greatest challenges in your industry? And I mean, you've got a double whammy. You know, you're a person of color and you're a female. You know, and I, and I've done as I've done these interviews. I've I've it's unravelled and and it made me see things very very differently from a woman's perspective. How difficult things can be. How you're not really taken seriously. How, you know, uh, the the doors are usually closed, etc. What what has been your challenges as a female in your particular industry and just generally coming up in your career?
1: So it's very interesting actually that you say, and my story might actually be quite different. I have come across environments in which I have really been enabled. I can't say I have not met with prejudice, and I cannot say that there have not been challenges because I'm a woman, but what has been the predominant sentiment and perspective, it has been a very positive one, I must say. And so let me start from when I did my honours degree I had this advisor, an old professor, his name is Ian Robertson, who just believed that there was something about me that was worth nurturing. So I felt promoted in that way. And then I went, I got a scholarship, I went over to Australia. I did have some challenges with um, race and race relations. I remember we went to a conference on an island in Tasmania, and we went to a pub, as people do, you know, after a conference you do. And I happened. We the only black person in that pub. And in that particular pub, there were also some elderly folk. I think they are from a bygone era. The one guy actually said to me, do you know what we've done with the likes of you in this part of the world? Oh, wow. Recently. But the crew that I was with, white folk mostly, came to my defense so fast and so hard. I felt protected. But I can't say that I have not faced prejudice of gender and of race. But my spirit is, I don't let things that I know are designed to let me down, let me down, because that's just the point, to reduce me to something else. And so I'm very keenly aware and sensitive to such matters, but I'm very keen to sidestep them and focus on what matters. Each time it seems that people are wanting to focus on me as a woman or me as a black woman, I always sidestep to what is the issue in hand, what is important, and that becomes the focus. And we all survive differently.
0: That's incredible. I love that. I do not succumb to the things that are designed to keep me down. I love that. That's going to be the, I'm going to use that in the quote in the meta tags of the the episode. That's an incredible thing. Okay, so you move. So, So then the path towards the CSR, why the CSR?
1: So, so so, that's a very interesting thing. You know, when we began this conversation, you said to me, you came from Zimbabwe when Zimbabwe was a breadbasket. Absolutely. And in fact, Zimbabwe at the time was putting up an institution such as the CSIR, it's, co- it's called the Scientific and Industrial Research and Development Center. So it's called CEDEC. So the acronym is a bit different. And there was such a huge vision around it. It was even in the office of the presidency at the time. And the idea was we were going to focus on translational research and we were going to make sure that our economy was very intensively knowledge-driven. At the time, there was also a vision to work with funders, with international governments. and and. So the professor who worked in the presidency, with the presidency to craft, it was President Mugabe at the time, craft the vision, had created all these networks for a cadre of scientists to go overseas and be trained and come back to work in that institute. So there is quite a few of us who got, I got a scholarship from the Rockefeller Foundation to study in the United States. And the idea was that I was going to go back to the SIRDC and work there as a scientist. There is people that I have worked with also at the CSIR who were part of that crop of scientists who were supposed to go overseas, come back and localize knowledge and technology, and really take Zimbabwe into another era. So I left in 1997. And the Zimbabwe that I left in 1997, and the Zimbabwe that I, when I wanted to come back, after I had done my PhD and my postdoctoral associate fellowship, was a very different country. So it's surprising how five years can be a lifetime in terms of how things changed. So I wanted to go back there But then I realized that that was 2004, 2005. That is when all the challenges started to really, really take a serious turn. I went to visit my institution and very sadly, I realized that we were supposed to be critical mass of scientists working together to bring up this institution. Some of my team had decided not to come back anymore under the circumstances. There were many challenges that could not be handled. I didn't foresee myself working efficiently as a scientist in the environment, which is perhaps my own fault. Because to be very honest, there were scientists that stayed, that continued to stay and to persevere. But for me, I then went back to the United States feeling quite despondent because I wanted to come back to the continent. And then I was advised to say, you know, South Africa is close to your home. Why don't you use that as a stepping stone to see if you can figure out what's going on in your own country and when you're ready to go back, go back, but you'll still be able to do science. So when I came to South Africa, actually, I was working for the University of Pretoria as a postdoctoral student. And then I gave a seminar and my first supervisor at um, the CSIR listened to this seminar. And then they sent me an email and they said, why again, are you going to work at the University of Pretoria? <laughs> why do not yeah. you come to work for the CSIR? I said, Sir, can't because I already have a commitment with the University of Pretoria. And then he says, to do what? I said, to be a postdoctoral fellow. So a senior person like you, be a postdoctoral fellow. I said, absolutely, I have an obligation. But in the end, I ended up working 50% for the CSIR and 50% for the University of Pretoria. And what I loved about it was I could do lots of applied research at the CSIR, and then I could teach at the University of Pretoria. And that is one of the most fascinating experiences of life is being able to have a conversation about concepts with young graduate students who are keen for knowledge and are hungry and are challenging because they are just coming into their own, Mm -hmm. keen to prove that, in fact, the professor is not that smart after all. So that was (laughs) an interesting time. But in time, of course, I ended up working 100% for the CSIR. I started off, I think they called them especially scientists. Then I became a senior scientist and then I became a principal scientist. Then I became a chief researcher. Then I got asked to do all sorts of other responsibilities until here we are now. I am a member of executive. I have uh, several executive portfolios, but um, I also still have a lab. I write grants. I write publications.
0: Brilliant, brilliant. But I don't want to go too deep down that just yet. Let's take a step back. So I want to hear your view on a Zimbabwe level, but also on a global level. If you take a look at you know, what they were, they were starting off from a political perspective to honor scientists, to house scientists, to give scientists a platform. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what we see in the world today is kind of a metaphor, what happened there is a metaphor of what's playing out on a global basis. It's almost, it feels like we have leadership that is sidestepping science, that is denying science, where science is actually something that is, you know, from a political perspective, something that doesn't really comply to where they want to go. And, and do you find that what you saw there in Zimbabwe have been a microcosm of what we see in the world today?
1: In so many ways, you could say. So we all know the value that science can bring to humanity, the advancements that have allowed us to have the creature comforts we saw so value now, mm-hmm. quality of life, the quality of health, the quality of food, the quality of transportation, you name it, our way of living is really founded in the principles of science and innovation. So we know what science and innovation can do for us. But it's funny how when evidence provides inconvenient truths, that we then want to sidestep the science and make it secondary. So it speaks, I guess, to the quality of the leadership that we have, but also very sadly to the gullibility of the bulk of our populations that continue to keep leadership that is not as well-meaning as they could be in power because they say the right things and they promise people the things that people would want to hear, but they don't base it on evidence anymore. Evidence is used, scientific evidence is used only when it is convenient to an agenda. And that is a major weakness of many of the current leadership regimes across the world today
0: mm, that's quite profound i think that's the, that's the one aspect of this and i almost want to lead this question into the world of social media mm. i think it was socrates when they asked him about humanity broadly having the capability to read and write my understanding is that socrates and i'm paraphrasing said well if all men put their thoughts down on paper you know we will all go mad uh, you know, and he was actually counter to literacy. He didn't want broad literacy to exist. He thought if we all put our thoughts out on paper and, and uh, you know, it would just make humanity go insane. And, you know, I, when I listened to that the first time, I thought how wrong you was. But now if I take a look at the world of social media and we don't write on walls and on, on caves anymore, we write on digital walls that have global access. It almost feels like it projects. So, and I feel like science is being drowned out by everyone else. There's such a cacophony of noise in the ether right now. What's your thoughts on that?
1: I absolutely agree with you. And to take that a step further, I don't know if you read a novel called 1984. Mm. It's an ability to rewrite history and change the truths for the truths to be convenient. And you can almost feel that then given those platforms, it is good that we can all express ourselves. But it's said that we don't have a kind of leadership maturity that helps us to say, and the moral fabric, I think, is one of the things that is integral to how human civilization has come about. It had to do with a sense of morality, never mind religion, but there is something that's acceptable and something that's not acceptable. Yes. Value in truths, there is taboo in untruths, and so on. Society seems to be losing that. And very sadly, those very things that keep the fabric of who we are as a society, the very things that have made us care for one another, actually, even in our own culture of Ubuntu, you know, it is about, I can be who I am because you are here with me. Mm -hmm. We are. But now it's not like that. It's very individualistic. It almost seems as if Our standards have gone out and much as everyone being able to put their thoughts on paper and out there into the world is supposed to enrich us, the debate that is sensible is always drowned out by the debate that is populist. And this whole idea that radical thoughts and radical thoughts are good if they are meant to advance society. But if radical thoughts and radical opinions take us backwards, then there is a problem. This is where you want then the leadership to step up and then say, actually, it's not like that because leadership from who actually is a question. We have our children in our households. This is where they start to learn everything they know about the world, about what is right, what is wrong, what is acceptable, even before they go to the school. And, and. So there is many hierarchies of influence in the formation of a human being. But the way the world is, is such that we all choose sides. We are tending to choose things that are convenient, not things that are necessarily right. Things that are right for me and my family, but not things that are right for my society. So for me, this is where we are beginning to regress a little bit, but let's not get I think that society is a way of self-correcting because I don't think that this is the first time that our civilization finds themselves almost in a crisis. I think we will self-correct. The sooner we self-correct are, the better.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So let me come back to your kind of the science side of the world, and I'll, I'll branch into the COVID-19 world now with you. I mean, yesterday I spoke to a friend, and he's based in London, and, uh, he's, and this is what I hear a lot. I've done my own research, and I see the following, that the infection rates are actually not that high. That the numbers that are being shared, the death rates are actually incorrect because the the deaths aren't actually caused by COVID. Because if someone had COVID two months ago and someone dies tomorrow of a car accident, it's labeled as a COVID death. And we we see this over and over and over. How just just kind of branch that thinking into where we are with COVID right now. It feels like people are so upset, and I love what you say. I, I think, and it keeps coming up on almost every single interview that I have that the world has a gaping hole right now, and that's leadership. Exactly. Yeah. Without We're now seeing that without leadership, what actually can occur, and data-driven leadership and science-informed leadership. But but coming back to COVID, your view around, and let's just take that, that principle, move it forward into the COVID world. I mean, I'm very worried of what I see. You see it playing out in the United States. People don't want to wear masks. You know, the scientists, Fauci, being pushed aside. And yeah, and, yeah, just your general thoughts in that regard.
1: So I hope that science prevails. You know, we had done a very good job of saying there are certain institutions that we need in order to maintain the interests of humanity. And there are many organizations like that. I would like to believe that WHO is one of those. We decided that we are all humans at whatever point we put it in place. We are all humans. We're all vulnerable, whether we're black or white or whatever, to certain disease. And we need a unified strategy for the survival of the species. And for me, this is something, that old noble leadership that was there, even to create institutions like the United Nations where the nations can sit together and say, what is good for humanity? How do we hold each other accountable? And it, clearly so many other unfair things go in. Others have more powers than others. Let's not go into that. Let's look at the principles of these things. And for me, such institutions were put into place to safeguard our survival as a species, but also to bring some equity and social justice in terms of access to food, because you do have the UN Food Programme, access to health, access to this, that shows you how fundamentally good a human can be when they put themselves to it and when they lead and they lead in the right way. They put such institutions. So now the problem that we have, in my view, is We are faced with a pandemic in which we were not necessarily putting together a united front, In which we said, let's come together in the interest of our species. We were very quick to then say, I think, and I could be wrong. Where did it come from? What, you know, whose fault is it? Who should have done what? Which didn't matter anymore. What we needed to do was to say, as a people, what do we need to do to close ranks and fight this one thing together? The one thing that heartens me is the scientific community, I think, is in a state of unprecedented collaboration because of where we have been projected into by this challenge of COVID-19. And it knows no borders, it knows no race, and it affects everybody. And the evidence is right out there for us to know that wearing masks does help. Washing your hands with soap and water does help. Being socially isolated does help, but we don't wear masks. They go to parties almost to spite someone. The sad thing is you don't spite anybody, you get sick or you get your neighbors to be sick. So that's where you feel that leadership has failed us for once. In terms of evidence and data, the thing is we say we have been propelled into the digital age and the 4IR age. We do have evidence, we do have data. But we don't have time. That's the problem. Because for me, some things, we need to be making decisions in real time. And we still need to process, much as we've got a lot of processing power, we've never had to deal, I don't think, with a pandemic, the one that was raging so fast, in which we had to make decisions so very quickly with a united front. So a lot of some of the things that we're learning are very true and very correct and evidence-based. But also when we get time to sift through this massive data and say, actually, which were the COVID deaths, which were this, which were the that, we will learn even more. The sad thing is, we have politicized many things. And that is the biggest weakness. We think about, we want a vaccine perhaps before there is some sort of election. And so we are wanting to develop. It's a good thing that we're wanting a vaccine fast. do Don't get me wrong. Do it correctly, do it properly. Don't endanger people because there is some political gain to be had out of it. And so the conversations around so who should get the vaccine first? There is people that say, you know, of course the frontline workers across the whole world should get this. You find also politically there's people that say, in our country, we'll get our vaccine and we'll do our thing. So There is political expediency that is being put into matters of decision making that perhaps shouldn't be politicized like that. But we are also lucky in so many ways. We can collect data. We can predict where the next hotspot is going to be. We can look at vulnerability of particular populations. We can equally almost preempt the challenge by saying we have a vulnerability spot at point X. Go put a field hospital, go send the doctors there, send the PPE there, and and because of data. So data connectivity, ability to visualize, ability to assess vulnerability. So we live in a very good time in terms of being able to see that something has happened, being able to predict through modeling what might happen, being able to preempt the worst possible outcome because of data. The only unfortunate thing is you can't get the politics out of it. And it takes them to taint things. But we live in a very bold new digital age. And if we were united and if we really had the interests of the species as such, humanity as such at heart, at all levels, not the rich, not the poor, we have the tools to deal with it. Yeah. And in research and development, I must say this is something that we've enjoyed because we're collaborating even more broadly across borders. And that's a topic for another time, perhaps.
0: Brilliant, brilliant. So so from a scientific perspective, what, what is your view of where we are at as a country right now with COVID? Well, I mean, you, you've obviously at the CSR, we've got the command center, um, you know you've been involved with that. I mean, you, you intricately involved. Here. So, as a as a person that knows exactly, as a scientist, where we at? Where are we at as a country? Because some people are speculating that the numbers don't make sense. How how come we handling this so wrong? I've seen newspaper articles this week in magazines like the Economist that are questioning why Africa. I mean, tuli Madonsela uh, came out in a tweet yesterday saying, and she disputed. I think it was the Economist magazine that said something about Africa. You know, maybe the numbers aren't right, And She said, "No, maybe it's because we do comply with hygiene. Maybe it is because we, etc., etc." So, what's your thoughts on that?
1: So, there is two things. Africa is not uniform, but one of the things that I would like to believe is that we are doing things right. And even if you look at the very early conversations where we looked at countries that started off on a similar trajectory like ours, and they went on into exponential levels of uh, disease increase. And we took what uh, I think Prof. Karim says, a little hook, and ours started to flatten a little bit before it took off. We did the needful, we took the right decisions. The Africans did things correctly. So it should not be discredited that there must be something the statistics, or there must be something wrong with this because Africa should have been hit hard. What if Africa got it right? I would like to believe that we got it right. I also don't want us to be naive. I would like to believe that there are parts of our world where we don't collect data as accurately and as effectively as we could. So it could be that some of our numbers in some parts of our continent are not as accurate as they could be. But if you think about it, deaths don't lie. That's what they also say. Hmm. So if people were saying they don't have COVID, but there were massive deaths happening in the background, we would say there's something wrong with our data collection. Clearly, we can always improve. But I think that we have done certain things right. And the challenge that we have now is to hold on to doing things right. Because I was looking at the headlines, I think it was on my CNN app yesterday, where they were saying that Europe is on the verge of a second wave and the numbers are looking like the way they looked in March. And so I was saying to myself, we have tried so hard, we have not been perfect. And it would be so sad if we then let go and became so free and really wallowed in this Interim victory that we slipped and then we went back to really very bad numbers. That would be a sad thing. So, for me, the thing to do is to not stop the messaging consistently, consistently without stopping. Tell the people, no matter what, to keep social distancing, keep your masks on, wash your hands with soap and water. Don't go to that party, it's not necessary yet. Let's hold on tight. This will pass. But if we don't behave correctly, it will not pass. It will become our norm and it will take us out.
0: Would you send your kids to school right now as a scientist? If you had a four-year-old, a 15-year-old, and a 19-year-old, one that's second-year university, one that's grade 11, and one that's preschool, would you send them all back?
1: Oh, my goodness. So what you're talking to me is so real. I have a son uh, who is 19, and he was in the U.S. And at a time, the U.S. numbers were going so radically badly, I had wrote to the embassy to repatriate him. So they have repatriated him. He's back home and he's doing all semester online. And I feel comfortable that uh, he is um, doing his studies online. You know, much as I work in the science field, I'm not the expert on this subject. Mm. So I would go with what medical experts are recommending. If it is critical for people in a particular grade to be having contact classes. Let them have contact classes with the appropriate precautions being made. Now, what is worrisome is that on a good day, our classes were overcrowded. Now, we have COVID and we're saying kids should go back to school. I must comment that the whole idea that some grades go and some grades don't, and the critical grades are the ones that go, is a good idea in the sense that it frees up class space for us to spread out the children. The thing that we also have to do is to make sure that every school does have the supplies, the sanitizers, the running water, which has been an issue before COVID-19, running water to allow us to wash their hands, good sanitation, and the PPE and thermometers, everything that the school requires. If we have those in place, then we can send kids to school. In the end, we can't live in the bubble forever. You understand? So we have to go out with the necessary precautions. And I guess that is the challenge. And we have to listen to what the health experts are saying. So I would imagine that the decisions that are made to say these grades can come under these circumstances are not decisions that the education ministries make by themselves. I think they're decisions that education ministries make with the advice of medical experts. So I think that this is the one time that we must make science help us to decide what happens. Right. Not the one time, one of the many critical times that science must decide how, um, what decisions we make.
0: Okay, I'm gonna jump straight because COVID I think is it's well played out. I wanna I want to go to your love, Agritech. Mm-hmm. Give me a view of the agri-tech world right now. Everywhere I go right now, as obviously a technology investor, mentor, startups, and etc. I, I, I'm bumping into agri-tech startups so much more. And there seems to be so much of a focus in this world right now. Why? And kind of just give me your view on the agri-tech world. Oh my
1: goodness. So the why is just like the most basic reasons. Food right. and fiber, those come from agri-tech, right? And now medicines, and as a matter of fact, if you think about all the original medicines, they came from plants before we could make the proteinaceous blockbuster type medicines. So agritech right now is a very happening field. And the reason why it is happening is because of the threat that we face as humanity with climate change. Our originally arable areas where we used to farm easily, where we could abandon this plot and go to the next one, lay follow this land and do that, they are fast shrinking with climate change, extreme weather events are hitting us very, very hard. The population is exploding, and yet the base from which we must produce food is shrinking. Elements that we require, the nutrition, the rain, the weather conditions are changing drastically. So this is where tech comes in. So if there is a field where if you are excited in tech, you can have a ball. So we do everything from working with genetics, to make more resilient animals, more resilient plant species that can deal with salinity and climate change. We work with Agritech to project what the weather patterns are going to be. And so therefore, how should we crop for the next few seasons? We look at history and we look forward, we can predict where the pests are going to come from, looking at precision agriculture to then say, if I look at my crop from up there, where is the moisture deficit? Where are the clouds of locusts? Where are, you know, we can do that. We can predict what the yield is going to be. Even on non-commercial farms, you can actually do a surveillance using those observation tools and other tools of precision agriculture to then say, this is going to be the yields. But actually, these are all smallholder farmers. How do we get them together so that they create a common market for themselves and start to get good deals and get good contracts? as a community of farmers, how do we start to project the regions that make a particular crop and say, how do they come together to negotiate for better deals with suppliers? And, 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 and then communicate with them online in real time, tell them what's happening with the markets, with the s- supply chain, with the, so Agritech is absolutely interesting, all the way to being able to vertical farm in the city to grow things in the peri-urban areas where we couldn't do this originally. So it's absolutely exciting. Also, the kind of agri-tech that I do, which is actually driven by medicine, where we say, actually, it's several fold cheaper to make the blockbuster medicines in plants. Very safely, actually. It's an amazing machinery for making complex proteins, which is what makes the science interesting. And then we can say, how do we do that? to make uh, medicines more broadly available. And so if we had time, I could talk to you about some of our antibody work, which is meant to tackle COVID, which is meant to tackle HIV and some neglected tropical disease, but that's for another time.
0: That's incredible, that's incredible. When are we gonna start storing data and protein cells in plants? When will plants start becoming um, a hard drive? When does that happen?
1: Oh my goodness. So you know, they already have data, lots. Yep. We don't know how to encode. So the whole idea, so actually a very simple idea is the one that I've shared right now, where we're saying, first of all, we always thought that if you want to make medicines for humans, proteinaceous medicines, you make it in mammalian cells. And we studied the plants and we realized that they have a machinery that if you understand it and you know how to reprogram it, you can make it make anything. So they've got all sorts of intelligence and data and machinery that are hardwired into it The limit of it is the extent to which we understand it. So the more we understand it, the more we can manipulate it. I always sometimes wonder, which is a bit silly, that when I look outside, I see in my garden, I see the plants, I see the water, I see you know, the trees, the water in the pool, whatever. But is that all that is there? Or I can only perceive the things for which I have sense to perceive. Technology enhances our senses to perceive a lot more. So I believe there is things that we can do with living systems that we have not even begun to be able to decipher. So the idea that we can continue to understand this, we can accumulate data, but from accumulating data, we can start to learn patterns, which is, of course, the whole idea of artificial intelligence, of accumulating data, deciphering patterns, and then being able to say, if this is a pattern, what could be another pattern, and so it goes. So I think that the world is on a bold new platform and we can do so much for humanity and for our planet if we were a little bit more organized. But of course, the issues that we started off with of um, leadership challenges and uh, leadership that is selfish and all those things, Are a hindrance in the level of possibility that lies ahead for humanity.
0: So, just in closing, I want to give the CSIR a punt because I just think the CSIR, when I joined the CSIR as a board member, the first couple of board meetings I walked away and I went, This is the most incredible institution that I've ever encountered in my career. And I've worked at Google. I mean, at Google, it was incredible. And Google was insane. And Google had all this innovation and all this amazing stuff. But the CSIR, It's an institution that I worked in, the people that I've spoken to, you, the scientists, the the projects. Every time I walk away, I just scratch my head and I think, what can we do better to communicate and articulate? And I think that's the strategy that we're on and we're going to do that better. And I'm very excited being part of that story. But just Spend a couple of minutes and just tell us about what's happening at the CSIR, the most prominent projects that you're working on, and then let's close on that, because that's so fascinating.
1: So, you know, I came to South Africa, like I told you now, 15 years ago, and I thought I was going to leave and go somewhere else because I've lived in many places, and I was going to go and work somewhere else because there are so many places to work. But I've stayed at the CSIR. It is an exciting organization. And if you believe in a cause, I think you would love working at the CSIR because design solutions to address challenges, to improve the quality of life of people. We have many, many projects and ideas and solutions. Like you rightly say, we're working on strategies to say, how do we communicate more what we do? How do we drive harder the translation of our science ideas into market-ready prototypes and the prototypes into products that are on the markets? And products that are solving problems, making us competitive, growing our economies, creating jobs, carving out larger value in global value chains for companies here in South Africa and on the continent. The CSIR is an institute that has got all the ingredients. And so it's absolutely exciting. And the number of disciplines where we can do this is broad. The depth of capability in many of the areas where we specialize, is really, really deep. The question is, how do we close ranks with other parties in our system of innovation so that is collaborative, truly and strongly collaborative, not just on the science end, but on the end that says, how do we bring things to market? And as you and I know, the leadership at the CSIR and the board and the shareholder are working on those particular strategies, and we won't create them here on this platform. But that's a work that is in hand, and I think we should watch this space, but then you and I know it's a space that we are all working very hard on.
0: Just quickly, just tell me two or three projects right now that just absolutely are for you incredible and we should watch out for them. Just if you can share some of them.
1: There are many technologies. So first of all, there is not to be selfish or anything. The work that my team and I in the life sciences are working on to provide therapeutics, long-term therapies, for multi-drug resistant HIV therapies for COVID-19 and so on. So that is topical, that is almost here and that is exciting. We have also done projects, as you very well know, that are publicized where we answered the clarion call to say, if ventilators are required, hey, the CIR is going to galvanize the system and we're going to make those ventilators and we're going to deliver them. And in that process, I think we've discovered that we can do a lot more in terms of translation. Than we've been doing before. We have, oh my goodness, we've got way too many technologies for me to even remember on my feet. Some of them are everything from um, paving of roads to alternative energy to alternative drug delivery systems, uh, bioplastics, uh, biodegradable plastics to drone technology we have supporting our work in defense and security, but also our work in precision agriculture. And we have lots of open infrastructure where we are calling in entrepreneurs to come and work with us in industry-like environments to say, how do we translate a lot more of the work that we do? So there is so much that is happening. I'm going to kick myself when this interview is over because I think that I won't have mentioned all the really good things that has slipped my mind because I wasn't prepared for the question. But
0: okay. <laughs> no, I think I'm just whoever's so listening right now, I just think just, I just reach out. I mean, reach out to me. Um, I'll put some of D.H. Rachel's details in the, in the, in the show notes and, and take a look at the CSR website. And it's just it's, it's an incredible institution. And I think we need to, to say more and we need to engage more. And, and the folks like you working in that is, is so encouraging. And I just want to say in closing, truly, Rachel, you are inspirational to listen to. You know, to see a a black female in the position that you are in having such impact, working on projects that are, I mean, tectonic, these are not just, you know, the next Facebook or the next Twitter, you know, this is stuff that's looking at water purification. This is stuff that's looking at health care. This is stuff. And I've always said that the next Twitter won't come from Africa. The next Facebook won't. But the next Twitter of water purification will, or the next Facebook of health will, or the next...
1: The intractable problems will be solved
0: here. Exactly. And thanks so much for your time today. And I don't know, do you want to say something in closing to all the women out there?
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. No, no. So all of women out there, they know, and they must know, that they have everything that it takes to be good leaders. All of the women out there must also know that working well with others is a good thing. There are men that have given us a platform to become who we are, and we thank them. And for me, you say, Rachel, you're like this, and Rachel, you're like that. Rachel is a Rachel that stands on a platform of so many others in the CSIR and before I came to the CSIR, but to young women. I want them to go into science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. I think it is exciting not to take away anything from the humanities because the way in which we translate work and make it fit in our societies has a lot to do with the value of the social sciences Mm -hmm. and understanding how our social systems work. But I think women, like men, can do anything that they set their minds to I think we've got a lot more resilience. When I look at myself, I'm a wife, I'm a mother. I worry about my children, whether to take them into school today or not to take them in. All the things that worry us, we worry about. But those are not things that should take away the opportunity for us to really become who we're destined to become as leaders, as scientists and as major contributors to society. So I think young women and young men out there empower and enable each other because I think society would be so much richer.
0: Oh, Rachel, thank you so much. I think what you just said there is so personified in the world today. If you take a look at leadership in the world, just from a COVID perspective, you know, where the graphs are actually going down, it's where we have female leadership. You know, where the graphs are going up or they're coming back again, we have male leadership. And I think that's that the world needs. There's something I always tell my daughters. I'm in a home filled with women. I've got three daughters and my wife and I've come to the conclusion that, you know, women are not equal women are better.
1: Absolutely. I wouldn't want to do that as a woman, but women (laughs) can do so much more. We just have not given enough of them opportunity to do what they can. Absolutely. We need more women to get opportunity. And in many parts of our world, very sadly, women don't even get the opportunity. So you're absolutely right. Women can do a lot more. They just need the platform and the chance. And in my life, if I see a woman who I can also lift up. I do that. I don't go up and carry the ladder with me. I try to keep the ladder there and do the best that I can to support my peers. I hope I'm doing a good job, but I'm sure I can be better. And so I strive to be better every day.
0: Rachel, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it.
1: No, no. Thank you, Stafford, for the opportunity. I enjoyed our dialogue.